All right, welcome back to Invisible Machines. Amazing episode today. Uh, two very prestigious guests joining us in the studio. We have Lee Hood, MD, PhD. He's a uh, National Medal of Science winner. He co-founded the Institute for Systems Biology, and he was instrumental in the Human Genome Project. His gas phase protein sequencer, uh, Lee's an inventor, uh, that, that really made a lot of the project possible. And then we also have Nathan Price, PhD, and he is the chief scientific officer of Thorn Health Tech. And uh, together, they, they've written this book called uh, a The Age of Scientific Wellness, which, uh, you know, other than the name similarities, on the surface doesn't seem to have a lot of intersection with Age of Invisible Machines. But we quickly realized that there is a lot of overlap in, in the strategic uh, thinking and the, and the systems it's thinking. It's amazing how all this stuff interconnects. Like the, these guests that we're talking to and like as we go around the wheel, different, like, whether it's healthcare and LLMs, whether it's marketing and LLMs, like we're just kind of just chipping away at how AI is just going to affect, particularly like language and NLU is going to affect every industry. And we're kind of just going one by one. And there's so much overlap and consistency across them. These guys creating digital twins of our human be human bodies and our biology so that you can you know, use that as a context machine for the LLM to suggest like what food seed and et cetera. It was just great. And, and the, and the comment that Lee made that like, you know, where we create digital twins for companies and they, they're focusing on digital twins for health, you know, that the digital twin for companies, you know, less moving parts, it's easier. There's less, less complexity than the human body. And but the the same principles apply. It's all prediction and health and you know health metrics and um, I think that's that's kind of interesting and 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 how we delved into gamification and biological health. I I found fascinating. Um, that was a good call, uh, Elias, grabbing those guys. Yeah, yeah. well, you, I I can't entirely take credit on this one. So uh, myself and Kate Timchenko, who works on the show, we suggest guests on on occasion you guys ask for a specific guest in this example my wife julia who actually works in preventative sorry she would correct me preventive cardiology at the uh. boone heart institute in denver she's an avid listener of the dax shepherd show uh with dax shepherd and monica padman and uh dr lee hood and nathan price were on dax shepherd's show recently and she's like this is about ai you gotta you gotta listen but it's not they're, they're coming <laughs> and just intersects with it right? right and so we we realized um there's a lot of overlap uh, let's see if they would be interested in coming and having more of like an insider conversation so we thought purely about ai if blossoms explodes into all sorts of topics yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it was a good 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 call i think it was a great conversation i enjoyed it a lot they enjoyed it so let's get into it Yep, all smiles. Here we go. All right. Well, Lee, Nathan, we really appreciate both of you joining us today on the podcast. Uh, there, there's so much to talk about, um, but one question I had maybe to kind of start us off uh, might be more for you, Lee. Um, I was interested to find out in reading the book that, that when you were kind of pitching the idea of sequencing the human genome to the scientific community, one of the uh, obstacles you had to overcome was this resistance to the level of automation that was present in the, uh, I guess it's the gas phase protein sequencer. 
and how that kind of took you by surprise because one of your goals was sort of sort of to remove tedium from the work days of researchers and and there was kind of this resistance to it and this idea that it would remove the human element from a lot of, of research and in, in our book we kind of talk a lot about the same thing in in context of business processes um, and we're kind of in a moment now where uh, we're, we're waiting uh, to see how automation plays out in that setting so I was wondering if 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 looking back, there were any benchmark moments uh, where you kind of saw the scientific community coming around to to your way of looking at it and, and seeing the real rewards in automating these these tedious processes? Well, I think uh, you're absolutely correct. I gave a famous lecture, I think, in 1986, a year after we started pitching the Genome Project. And the first... A Friday night lecture. These are big scientific lectures. The room was overflowing. There was a buzz of excitement and everything. And I thought, God, they really appreciated what I had to say. And then, as you say, the very first question was, you say, automate this and automate that. Where's the humanity in your science? <laughs> and I have to say, the answer to that question came slowly and incrementally. And I think what changed people's minds is applying automated sequencing to ever bigger projects that had real biological interest. And people then came to see you really could do things you couldn't possibly do with the manual kinds of sequencing and so forth. For example, one of the things that really had a big impact is we seek sequence the entirety of uh, a immunoglobulin gene family in the mouse. And that was the first time anything as audacious as that had ever been done. And people said, wow, maybe this is possible to think about sequencing the human genome. And so I, I think, look, I think in paradigm changes, you have to have brilliant ideas. You have to conceptualize them. And then you have to kind of prove principle. But that's just the beginning of what you have to do. Then there's a whole uh, enormous task of persuading the scientific world that what you've done is significant and should be a pro a supported in an appropriate scale. And, and those things really come about incrementally. I think, you, you know, scientists are represented an enormous gradient from vague skepticism to powerful skepticism. And you have to work yourself through uh, these various waves of skepticism. And even when we started the Human Genome Project in uh, 1990, that was five years after we really started to proselytize, I think there were a lot of skeptics of the extreme type then. And, and at the end of it, uh, unfortunately, people had really pushed the hype on, gee, uh, every gene could represent a drug. We can change the whole biomedical world immediately. That was all nonsense. Look, it's 20-some uh, years after the genome was finished in 2003, and, uh, and we're still um, struggling to begin to bring the advantages of knowing the sequence of the human genome to medicine. Thanks. And it's, it, again, it's an incremental thing with the most adventuresome healthcare 
uh, groups, uh, starting modestly with the genome and maybe genes that control your ability to respond to drugs or things like that. It's uh, it, we still have a long ways to go in bringing the enormous power of the genome and its its hundreds of different actionable possibilities to healthcare itself. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure AI goes through all the same kinds of things. Maybe with the exception of large language models, which uh, overwhelmed anybody, but they brought out as deep a criticism as they brought out passion for we're going to change the world, and especially we're going to change the world of medicine, which, frankly, I think yeah. uh, Nathan and I certainly share. It's funny because it's, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's super clear historically, looking back, that the fish always grows as big as a bull when it comes to inventing jobs for people to do um, and, and, and just raising the bar on what we want to accomplish and our imaginations for what to do next and keeping busy, right? The idea that that we could run out of ideas for how to stay busy uh, seems sort of uh, crazy, but but yet we just keep kind of circling back to that, saying maybe this is the cap, and and we've we've finally exhausted our ability to invent new jobs. Um, but there's something you said there. Well, you know, one point I would make about AI that I think is totally missing in the discussion with the large language models is how you educate them is really important. Right. For example, if you take a large language model that's been exposed to all the discrepancies present in the current uh, literature of, of, uh, of, of the world and everything, that's really different from taking an AI model that has only seen biomedical education and hence will be constrained to thinking in biomedical terms and not deceive you and not input in wrong references and not give you uh, false assertions about right. this or that or the other thing. I think this education of large language models has really been overlooked. I agree. And I think it really eliminates many of the more serious features that are criticized now. Yeah. We had somebody on the podcast um, from Mosaic, and they, they they we kind of laughed, called them a mixologist, right? Because their job was specifically to decide on not just which data sources to use to feed the model, but how much of each, right? And they described their job as just very artful, like very much more like a chef. You know, we we kind of you know chef boyardee, you know, kind of idea of putting together. Um, a certain mix of, of of data from certain places, and and once you kind of look at the problem from their perspective, like you imagine you're a mixologist for data, and you start to think about how much Reddit, how much Wikipedia, how much from books, um, and then you start using it, you can sort of infer from, like you said, from how it behaves, where it got the data from. Um, yeah, yeah. I think you sort of look at it and you realize like, oh, ChatGPT must have consumed a lot of books because the language and its ability to articulate in the written form is extremely, um, 
ex, ex, like, it, it's yeah. extre extremely pa powerful, right? And so we know that it must have consumed a lot of formal writing. Um, and I know there's probably multiple models in the background, you know, one formal model, and, and we get this idea of like a double mixology. It's different models trained with different amounts of data and different proportions of that data. And then, right. and right. then on top of that, you have multiple models and then something in front of that that's trying to parse what you're asking it to do and then pick the right model for the task at hand. And so it just sort of becomes this Matryoshka doll sort of, of models and, and figuring it out. But that idea of like playing around well, with no, different data sources. Else. Yeah, I think something else that's really important is the quality of the content. So for biomedical, what we're thinking to do to train a uh, large language model is to put in all of the information that come from digital twins we're constructing that are focused on a single disease like diabetes. Uh -huh. And essentially you put in physiologic data, you put in uh, mathematical formulae and uh, formulations about it. You put in biochemistry, you put in omics data and all of those things. And if you do that for wellness and prevention and for a whole series of diseases, and then if at the same time you put in the two very large uh, knowledge graphs that exist in the world today with 850 billion nodes in the case of Google, and that's just the biomedical knowledge graph, right? and, and probably 50 million Eight hundred fifty million edges, fifty million nodes. Right. I mean, that's really useful data. And then give it PubMed, and uh, uh, and then we think you'll be able to put the data, complex phenomic data of individual patients in, and it'll make an assessment and be able to go then to for each individual, an ordered priority list of actionable possibilities that you can do to bring yourself back to equilibrium. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. The digital twin concept, I think you guys, um, you're one of the first, I think, I've read and talked to that um, sort of uh, really take the digital twin concept to a different level, more abstract level. It's not like a physical representation of a space or a physical copy of a space in a virtual world. It's what we're talking about is more of a concept of your health and and you um abstractly in a graph right and then saying okay we're going to take you know a, a, the elements we know about you and then we're going to run simulations to determine you know uh based on unknown data what best treatments what best diet um and i i can't help but go to like the the roomba like the 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 robot that that kind of vacuums your house and maps out your house. Um, today, we kind of use that map just for vacuuming. Like it belongs to that robot and it just uses it for vacuuming. But there's no reason that that map of your house that knows where all the objects are and what objects have moved and all of those things couldn't help you get an estimate on carpet cleaning or floor refinishing or many other things that that digital twin that it's created right it's just kind of used in that specific area and when you think of when you talk about a digital twin in in the healthcare space i i i only imagine like that could extend to so many other things as well 
you know, that now we're just not just health, but, but just learning a new language and understanding maybe how your brain works differently than others based on patterns in this data. Um, and it just kind of really evolves into a GPS of life, potentially, not just a GPS of health, you know, GPS of learning, GPS of being strong, um, living long and healthy lives and all of this stuff. It's just so fascinating to to imagine how quickly this can can unravel. But the, the one thing I wanted to to ask you guys about is one thing I really love about the digital twin concept in a graph cut construct is that it's valuable even in a low fidelity like limited resolution way like just a little bit of data it, it becomes useful it doesn't need to be this like fully high resolution digital twin just to start providing immediate value so it's something that you can iterate on and it just gets better and better um just wanted to get your guys thoughts on 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 how the digital twin might exist and, and where it might exist like, is it on your phone? Is it in the cloud? Does it belong to your GP? <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of things that you can get into uh, around digital twins. And, you know, you know, we can get into the details. We've built a uh, uh, very sophisticated digital twin model for brain health now uh, that can take, you know, input from parameters, uh, blood measures, cognitive and, and things of this nature and then predict the most likely age at which uh, an individual patient might expect to get a diagnosis of dementia. We have probabilities associated okay. with that, so you can simulate that out. But most importantly, what you can do is you can actually suggest all kinds of different ways that you can go about prevention. And we wrote this article for the LA Times a few weeks ago you know, on Alzheimer's prevention and sort of how you go about that. And so it will then tell you like what percent aisle of a responder that you might be uh, to each of these interventions. And one of the things that comes out that's really interesting is that when you look at interventions one at a time, the effect size is usually very small. And I'll, I'll come back to that later okay. in terms of how I think this totally changes how a lot of clinical trials should be done. But that single effect is usually small. But when you start stacking combinations, and they're different combinations for each person, right? It's like you have multiple gears of a clock that are broken. If you test one and you kind of fix it, it doesn't do anything. You got to you got to fix all four yeah. of them or, or whatever. You got to solve the problem. It's always a systems problem. And so when we do this, uh, basically, uh, what you then find is that rather than having a few months benefit, you start predicting years of benefit, sometimes over a decade of benefit in terms of the degree to which you can push that you know likely date of of diagnosis into the future. So the digital twins are incredibly powerful, not only for personalizing to the individual, but also for letting us think more holistically or strategically about the whole process uh -huh. of how we treat disease, because you can simulate clinical trials in these things. And so you can simulate clinical trials, you know, in all kinds of different iterations that would take you thousands of years to, you know, run through all of them. And instead you can look at the broad swath of a very complex hypothesis about how a disease is forming, how you're maintaining health, and then what are all the ramifications of that? And would we, in fact, how does the data that we get from our actual clinical trials, it's always a small subset of that, fit into this larger yeah, vision yeah. of how this thing actually manifests? So we can go into that in a lot more detail. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. We, we kind of, we do 
you know, digital twin for companies, right? So it's the idea of, you know, mapping your company, the employees, customers, like, again, not like the physical space, but the, but the, the abstract concept of what a company is and then the relationships between them being the most important thing, who works with who, you know, which products do people use? Um, and one thing that we find extremely valuable is using temporal graphs, which is the concept of, uh, you know, having graphs in time. So it's, it's essentially like it freeze frames graphs over time. So you can always go backwards and look at where relationships were at one time and which really just helps with predictive because a lot of, a lot of people implement these digital twins as like current moment in time, right? They're, they're always like a snapshot of today, but being able to go backwards in time and, and then look at, you know, things that have happened, then things that resulted from things that have happened and then being able to run simulations based on a temporal view you know, a time view of where, you know, what things worked and didn't work. Um, and, and doing that on a, in a company level where we're kind of saying it's like the health of a company, essentially it's, you know, what would happen if we hired this person? What would ha happen if we added another person? What, what would happen if this customer left, you know, and being able to run simulations, um, even simulations on customer service where you, where you, you provide answers to you know, proposed answers to certain issues. And then you, and then you run prior customer interactions to see if how they would react to those things, or you launch new products. Um, and this is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about it on a company level. It's even uh, I, it, in my, my mind, even more fascinating to think about it on a health level because of, you know, I, I'd rather be personally healthy if I had a choice between a healthy company or a healthy me, I would choose a healthy me. <laughs> I hope I don't have to make that yeah. choice, but I certainly would choose a healthy me. Well, I think a really important point of what you talk about is what we call systems biology. And really the heart of systems biology are the biological networks of protein and other molecule interactions that underpin normal and disease physiology. And what is absolutely critical to deconvoluting the complexity both of wellness and of various diseases are the dynamics of how those networks change in, as a consequence of single different kinds of perturbations. Mm -hmm. And in a model system like a digital twin, you have essentially infinite capacity for exploration in contrast to right. a human or a population of humans where you can do th things only in a very narrow bandwidth. And you can't, you, for example, in the future, multiple drugs are going to be a key preventive for many chronic diseases. How do you do a clinical trial on multiple drugs when right. you have to choose concentrations? You have to choose and maybe combinations of different kinds of concentrations and all these things. It, it's virtually inconceivable to think you can take right. hundreds or thousands of people and do that successfully. But a digital twin, to the extent it creates virtual people, and you can instantaneously make six changes or ten changes, and you could do it dynamically, changing the parameters as you go. And all of these things, when you put them together, are powerful tools in deconvoluting complexity. And Really, that's what you're doing with business, too, only 
the number of parameters is infinitely small. Exactly. Well, yeah, it's more it's more manageable. I I was thinking though, even still for the physician, e- even without the diagnosis and all the other parts and pieces, you know, when you when you visit the, your doctor, they they only have the physiology of of you and what's in the room, right? They like blood tests and 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 what they can test right there. But having an abstract digital twin, something that's deeper, you have all the events in your history, all the things you ate, you know, things that no longer today were not are not available in that room without like spending hours, you know, having them walk through the last three or four or six months of their life. Right. And I ate this on this day and I ate that. So so the doctor could immediately just be more informed of. I almost think of that show, House, that old show where he, you know, he, they lie to you, the patients lie, they don't, you know, they tell you they don't smoke when they're smoking. And, and like just having, you know, a deeper uh, view just from a digital twin, even if there's no diagnosis from the system at all, just just giving a human being a, a more high fidelity view of the problem, more data to process seems just in that alone, it seems like a huge benefit. Yeah, and you can get into this in a lot of a lot of detail. And what's really fascinating, I give you just a few examples of the kind of things that the digital twins teach us that are pretty big elements of, of how we think about medicine. So I'll come back to the Alzheimer's just as a specific example. So one of the There's compounds that. that has a very high hazard ratio for Alzheimer's is vitamin D. So people who are low in vitamin D get Alzheimer's at much higher rates. And we observe that in retrospectively. Now, what happens often in these cases, so there are four uh, randomized clinical trials that have been done to evaluate whether or not vitamin D is causal, right, causal or correlative. Now, what's interesting in this case is that if you look at all four of those clinical trials, the the uh, outcome of them is pretty mixed, right? Maybe there's a little effect, you don't see it, so forth. So here's what's interesting. So in the digital twins, when we look at the impact of doing a single perturbation in the digital twin, like a vitamin D, uh-huh. as I mentioned, the you know we te- for most people, you see it's a fairly small effect. Because the other thing that's, that's interesting about vitamin D is we actually know about the causal mechanism. It binds with an enzyme and it has the it tightens the regulation of cholesterol reverse transport in the cells, which turns out to be important. But if you're tightening that regulation, if if your problem is that you don't have the right substrate to go through that pathway, you know it's like fixing uh-huh. the uh, you know fixing the traffic lights when there's no no cars on the road, right? It doesn't make any difference. Or your brain oxygenation is low. So it's there's there's context that matters. So one of the things that we've done with the digital twin model is we've gone back and simulated all four of those clinical trials and asked the question that if the mechanism is true and the, you know, if the mechanism is true and if the um, effect size is exactly what we see in the observational data, would we expect any of those clinical trials to have shown a positive result? And the answer is no. We would, they did exactly what we would predict they would do given that everything that they purported to test was 100% true. And so what this means yes, is sir. that with this concept of the digital twins, we can look at different conundrums in clinical trials and 
zoom in on them and I'll do another example a, a little later, uh, but there's, there's a bunch that we can, we can get into. And so what's fascinating there is that we have huge numbers of things like this, especially in the natural product space where you're not, you don't have a billion dollar drug. So you're not going to run a trial on a hundred thousand people. And so basically what this means is that by doing these clinical trials, not based on a compound, but around a system solution embodied by a digital twin, you go from trials that have small small effect sizes to trials that have big effect sizes where the intervention is personalized in every case. And what I think is going to happen is that by doing that kind of trial, we're now in, a, in an economic reality where if you want to look at some of these things where we see in the we see observationally look like they have a huge effect, but we don't see it in these small scale uh -huh. clinical trials, I think we're going to now see those and we'll understand the context in which they work and be able to have an N, right, a number in these trials that's economically justifiable when you're testing a compound that, you know, like a vitamin D that's cheap and, you know, for everybody, you're not going to make a billion dollars off of it. Uh, but we'll be able to run trials that make sense in that context, uh, where right now we only really do trials at that scale in drugs. So it's really this move away from this one variable to multiple variables. Uh. Let me let me make a really important point. The really key issue there is we do trials where we investigate one by one each individual and not trials where you average the results from all individuals. Right. It's the average process that really dilutes and kills the signal in many clinical trials. But if you were to take the same hundred or thousand or 10,000 individuals and do them all together, what you'd find is all of a sudden the population is stratified into different groups where your causative um, test made a real difference or where it didn't make a difference. And then we can sort out which people fall in those categories and you can give the drugs to the people that respond to the drugs. What's What's really interesting today is if you average the top 10 selling drugs and people's responses to them, 10% of the people really respond effectively. But suppose we could easily, with a data-driven approach, identify the responders and give the drug only to the responders, then the other 90%, A, wouldn't pay all that money for the drug, and B, wouldn't get exposed yeah. to all the side effects of the drug. So. It's, and that's going to happen, and we'll be able to, and it'll have profound economic implications. We spend $600 billion plus a year on drugs uh, now. Suppose 90% of that could be saved. That is a striking Massive. transformation in the cost of it. Yeah, I was also thinking like just like, let's say chronic pain, the the idea that, that you have a, you know, uh, LLM, so a, a, a conversational AI um, that just you know asks you how how is your pain today, and on one particular day you would say you know today was particularly good. Now you have all this history of what led up to that day, you know what you ate and what you did and 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 did you exercise like just these elements this in your digital twin you have this data now now theoretically the doctor could look at at, at what happened preceding that great day and and then they could start mixing up and trying to recreate 
the elements that led up to that great day and see if see if you know if, if there's a there's a combination of things that led to 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 lower pain but then we think like there's not enough doctors to take that kind of time on a per person basis to to analyze information at that level like we we're gonna have to have some intelligence that can say hey this was a good day you know i'm I'm going to do a GPS of low pain here. I'm going to try to take you on a tour and we're going to try to repeat some of this stuff and see if there's a formula for repeating that good day over and over again and, and, and get to the bottom of like what, what was the causal nature of it. And what if it just turns out that your daughter visited that day and like it, it ends up being a social component and, and that's just something that medicine would, would probably miss entirely as 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 a as a part of of the pain management so to speak yeah there's no doubt about that and that is one of the things that's so interesting as we go into you know medicine in, in the era of ai is because there's so many questions that just affect our daily life why does one day you wake up and your right, your energy level is lousy or you have chronic pain or you have um you know just whatever it is you're depressed you're you know all, all these different issues and we have some understanding of all those processes, but in many cases, we don't have a really deep understanding because we have not until even very recently had much insight or information at all in terms of what's happening you know, day to day, and certainly in terms of a deep molecular uh, understanding of what those things are. So AI, as we were getting to earlier, talking about you know the, the level of questions or the new jobs or the, you know, do we reach a limit, right? And I think... Every time we've developed tools, they let us think at a, a scale that we just couldn't have done before, right? Because we take things that used to be hard and we make them easy. And AI is becoming a massive accelerator of that. And, and what I think is that we're actually going into the absolutely most exciting time that we've ever had in terms of, of medicine. Because if we can start thinking of questions on a different scale enabled by the AIs, that's going to let us like take a real shot at eliminating a lot of, of these chronic diseases. If you think of something like cancers, right, which we've struggled on for so long, mm -hmm. you know, now we're making some inroads because of immunotherapies and things like that, where we're, we're entering into a, a dialogue of sorts with this incredibly complex system, the immune system we have. And you know, as we get better and better at that, you know, we should be able to start you know, feeding information into our bodies about, you know, here's a pro because our bodies mostly fix themselves, right? So what we're dealing with in disease right. is where it misses it, right? It's failed. It can't get it. And so you can imagine, you know, being able to get into these, um, you know, kind of more complex dialogues with these systems where we tell them, you know, how to behave. Like a, a simple example of this that's been really interesting recently is um, work that was done by um, one of Lee's uh, oldest uh, and best friends, uh, Irv Weissman. But basically where you can put a program into a cell, you know, that like a cancer cell, and then when it sees certain molecular features that you've you've measured and seen, then you can use a little bit of intelligence and you can tell the cell then to click up a protein on its surface that's an eat me signal that tells your immune system, uh. this is one you missed, come and clear it out. Like these are, you know, early stages of these things that are, that are quite successful, uh, but we could just imagine getting better and better and better at that. Uh, over time so it's it's really an exciting time yeah it's like it's like truly getting to a place where it's a holistic look at health i i know you guys talk about 
you know, getting to the world of prevention. Um, but it, it, there's also like a breadth, there's a breadth and a, and a component too, which is looking more broadly at health and, and the, the, the full elements that come into a, a healthy life, which is psychological and all these other elements that now maybe it's not so siloed and, and it is really more of a holistic um, view of, of wellness. Um, you guys talk a lot about the fact that a lot of the medicine we have today, and, and you know, I'll, I'll make a stretch here and say because it's not holistic, doesn't really work. Um, it's you know, a lot of the drugs we take don't actually work. And what it does, Rob, it absolutely treats symptoms rather than the true causal facts of the disease, and that in part is because. As you initiate a disease at the beginning, it's very simple, and it's really there where we'd like to focus the prevention, yeah. be able to detect it, prevent it, long before it ever becomes a clinical disease. But as you move toward more advanced disease, these biological networks become more and more disease-perturbed, complex, and many features are operating in the disease. So if you cure one of the disease-perturbed networks, you may have seven others that you haven't even touched. <laughs> and that's the problem. I mean, today we have this really interesting focus of disease. And the healthcare is 95% of focus on disease. All the financial incentives are around that. But suppose we could actually optimize wellness. Suppose we could really very early on to detect all transitions to chronic diseases and prevent them, that would give you a type of healthcare that's fundamentally different from what we have today. But how do you go from a disease-oriented healthcare where all the financial incentives center about successfully doing something with patients with disease? They don't even care about wellness or prevention because it doesn't bring any money. right? So we have to have a fundamental revolution. And I'll just say that I've started two years ago a nonprofit system called Phenome Health. And our whole vision is we would like to, over the next five years or so, persuade the government to initiate, in a sense, a second genome project. But in this project, we'd take a million people over 10 years, and we do this enormous data-dense approach to whatever they are. Definitely. Many would be well, some would have diseases. We'd see many disease, wellness, disease transitions. We'd be able to see all aspects of it and take these data in and put them in the context of artificial intelligence that could then classify the actionable, unique actionable possibilities, and I would guess we'd come up with 10,000 or more of these, and be able to put them together in the context of individual patients, just exactly as we've said. But they'd have to be sent to the doctor, and the AI would really have to do two things, explain what and how you do the actionable possibilities, uh -huh. and two, it has to persuade the doctor that it has a fundamental scientific underpinning. Right. That's the skepticism they have about wellness, and quite rightly so, many wellness schemes are, 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 are certainly not scientific. But in this case, can you imagine a physician that had access to 
10,000 possibilities, in a sense, That's that a... physician would become a specialist in all of medicine and could to deliver to his patients uniquely powerful, effective uh, uh, treatments in all of the different dimensions, both optimizing wellness, yet emphasizing prevention, and when it arose, dealing with disease effectively. Yeah. I almost think of taking it to another level, which is like, anytime you have a systemic issue, it's always multi-pronged, you know, causal issues. But let's just say on one basic, it's a scarcity of doctors, you know, just doctors don't have, not enough doctors, not enough time. Um, and, and you and go- And not enough to reach out to doctors. Right, yeah, so imagine now, we have AI, so we have a doctor for every person, right? And we have a world where every person has a physician. And, um, and so there's no shortage and of physicians. And the physician has all of the knowledge. Right, all yeah. the knowledge of your world. And then I always got to take it to the next level where it's no, every person has at least two physicians that constantly argue with each other. And you can, you can watch that argument happening so that you can make up your own mind so you can feel a sense of control in your life, right? It's not... It's not nanny AI where it's telling you what to do. No, there's two positions and they're going to argue about their opinions. And then you, you will moderate that. And then, and then from that argument, you know, feel that sense of control. And I think, wow, that's just, that's just, that's just massive. And, and in the end, you didn't have a system controlling you. You just got to observe an argument of two, three physicians arguing about whether you should eat a donut this morning or not. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that's, I mean, I know I get out there sometimes, but I think that's kind of a fascinating <laughs> world, and I, I want to be there, you know? I, I and, and then it comes down to you your know, point. Implicit, Rob, implicit in what you say is the enormous problem of how do you activate people to want to participate in their own health mm -hmm. and learn about choices to the extent that you can make those kind of uh, decisions. Right. And... Changing from a disease to a wellness and prevention requires persuading patients, persuading physicians, healthcare leaders, healthcare technology people, regulatory people, politicians, the whole business. How do we educate people that are used to a world that is orthogonal to what it should be? And that is an enormous challenge. Yeah, and I, I really like this notion that you brought up, Rob, of like the you know the arguing physicians, the different points of view. You know, I I think it's I think it's a great point. And one of the things that the early age, you know, you know the dawn of the internet era and so forth, right? There was this mantra, right? Information wants to be free. And I think now we've really got to be pushing for medical information wants to be free. And one of the reasons, yeah, yeah, because you can get access to that, you know, through well trained highly accurate through the LLMs, you know, on top of medical information. And one of the things I'll point out is that the case for that being made much more cheaply or freely available to everyone is that we all paid for it. The NIH is, you know, most biomedical studies, trials, you know, a lot of the information is all publicly funded. Most of it sits behind these paywalls, so most people can't read it, um, which is its own problem. But the other problem is that when we write scientific articles, they're written for our colleagues and their debts, right? Most people cannot understand a scientific paper. But now you come in with the LLMs, you can ask it a question, 
It can inform itself mm-hmm. based on all of that information that you've got, you know, that you paid for that's in PubMed. And you can have it described to you. You can give it your language. You can say, all right, I'm a PhD in molecular biology. Explain it to me that way. Or I have a high school education. Explain to me that way. Or, you know, I have a, I'm a lawyer, but, you know, I don't know much science. Put it in, you know, the language I could understand like it was in the New York Times or whatever, right? It doesn't matter. You can have it generate information for you on any topic at any level. So the democratization that that represents of being able to tie into this literature, it is an enormous return to the federal government's in investment that you can now take advantage of that you couldn't before. And you can you, that's true in, you know, getting access to the the basic studies and now into healthcare, you know, should I do X or Y? Have a couple, you know, expert act as expert physicians on two sides and give you the data, you can make your own choices, et cetera, et cetera. Like the ability to deliver health information is now radically better. And we need to make sure that we don't get in the way of that. Cause I think yeah. it's it's essential to get your money back. You know, your money your money's worth from all that, all the taxes yeah. that go into that. It could even be a heated debate. They could insult each other. It could be entertaining. We could You could choose, and, right? <laughs> but I, I, Lee, yeah. I love the I used to, you know, I was thinking that the big benefit is that we'd feel in control, but I'm, I'm agreeing with you that the big benefit is really that through the watching the argument, we would be educated and, and not in this boring classical way of, of being talked at or talked to, but to actually, you know, watch a debate and, and hear both sides. And that debate about you yeah. and what your essence is and what your future health trajectory is and most of all, what should you do to enhance it to its maximum possibilities? Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting too. In in our in our book, we we talk a bit about. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> uh, that's kind of a, an important concept to us that um, that the role of technology in our lives, especially as it advances as it has been, is that it needs to be there to help us make better decisions, which is such a big part of personalized or personalized medicine, but also a big part of, of getting people engaged and, and trusting the technology. Um, and, and you both are advocates for, for P4 medicine, medicine that's uh, predictive, personalized, preventative, and participa- participatory. And I guess I'm wondering if um, I, clearly the particip- participatory uh, aspect is kind of the most problematic right now. And, and it seems like there's this added difficulty um, with so many people not only having a distrust of technology, but also of medicine. And I'm curious if, if you've thought a lot about how how that hurdle might be cleared, if it might just be the, the spoils of preventative medicine are so apparent that, that everyone will be on board, or if we're going to have to constantly kind of fight against people not wanting their personal information in the hands of, of people they might perceive as untrustworthy. I, I love that question because that strikes at the heart of what I think is the essence of what we have to achieve if we're to really create in the next 10 to 15 years this transition from disease to wellness and prevention. So the fourth P is all about psychology, sociology. It's, it's about economics and it's about education, all of those things. The first three Ps, if you think about it, are about science and we pretty well know the directions we can really start and go in there. So with the education side, what Phenome Health has done, 
I think are some really novel things. So one, uh, Nathan and I together with others recently wrote a scientific textbook that uh, on systems biology and systems medicine. And it's really written very much for medical students so we can educate uh, physicians as to this systems kind of thinking. We have at the Institute for Systems Biology an educational group of six superb people that do K through 12 education. What they did is they took the two chapters on systems medicine and P4 healthcare from the textbook, and they've created a four-module course for juniors and seniors that's a full year long that gives you an enormously deep view of the medicine of data-driven health that we've been talking about. We did a similar thing for systems biology about 10 years earlier, and it turns out now that has been used in all 48 states in 100 different countries and has probably had more than 3 million students use it. And we see exactly the same kind of trajectory for the, the uh, healthcare course. Those students will know more about the future of medicine and what they have to be think about and be responsible for than 95% of the physicians. A third thing we've done with Google and Scientific American is generate an 80-page document on the new science of uh, scientific wellness. And this has papers by Nathan and myself and others that explain in simple everyday language what it is in this new uh, data-driven health. We're now in the process of creating a movie over the last 5,000 years of health and see the dramatic changes that have occurred and the transitions that bring us up to what is, I think, the most revolutionary change in the entire history of healthcare in that state of driven medicine. But it does it in an artistic manner with shots from different regions of the seven blue zones where people live in very healthy fashions. What are the common features of these blue zones? Because they really vary one from another and so forth. <laughs> and, um, and, and then the book that Nathan and I recently did on the art of scientific wellness in a sense, is a compilation of our accumulated knowledge at that point in time on the vision and how we can take it forward. And it's really, uh, it's it's uh, what we're beginning to talk about so, I think, effectively uh, on this podcast. And yeah, uh, yeah, that movie sounds fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, especially looking at that full, like, uh, I think you said 5,000-year history of medicine because a lot of what goes into longevity in the blue zones is probably tied to i guess sort of sort of ancient wisdom and it's been interesting to see things like the interesting ways yeah and the blue zones emphasize different kinds of things that are components of wellness so it's a Mm -hmm. it's a fascinating topic to talk about because it brings you in a mosaic sense a deeper understanding of what you are and what your most effective blue zone features are going to be. That's where we want to take everybody. And it, it seems like gamification has to play into this somewhere. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think gamification and feedback loop are kind of intertwined, right? It's, 
quick feedback equals gamification or the ability to 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 gamify um your health and and i think it comes down to the fact that as as human beings we don't do well with latent like feedback you know immediate feedback is yeah. is what we do really well with and and if that you know a lot of health prevention stuff is latent i i think i was uh you know <clears throat> reading an article recently on how when you sort of fMRI brains and we we think about altruism and helping other people and then we think of our future self that it activates the same areas it's as if when we try to help our future self we're really asking uh, us to be altruistic we we see our future selves as just a, another person not ourselves and so when we say do this for your future self we we think you know selfishly no um and so so it has to be more immediate and 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 sort of gamifying you know health in a way by you you have a number of of tools like you know blood tests regularly you know fecal samples things that could really help gamify and and bring back that immediate feedback to 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 kind of get people into more of a you know let's say united airlines point system for health <laughs> you know where good for you well let me give you a good example of gamification in in the program we have and that is one thing we haven't talked about and one thing that contemporary medicine ignores completely is brain health when is the last time a physician ever said how's your brain how are you doing and thinking and so forth what michael merzenich a uh, 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 national academy scientist uh, kevly were a warner for proving the brain is really flexible did was to create a series of digital measurements for the brain that could assess 25 different cognitive features like reaction time, like depth of field perception, like uh, memory and things like that. And not only could he assess it, if you were deficient in those cognitive features, he designed games that you could play that would replace the plasticity of your brain and bring your cognitive feature back to what it should be. And a really remarkable uh, uh, study he did was take of the order of a thousand eighty-year-olds and show that their lost and declined cognitive features could be built back up to the point where at least close to where they would have been at a maximum in your mid-30s. So it means your brain is flexible as long as you've not lost neurons and things like that. And we all have remarkable ability to re restore ability. Right. Tom Brady, for example, used this for depth of field reaction time, and he said it was an incredible testimony uh, and a key part of his playing football into his 40s. Uh, I, it's it's gamification can be yeah. so powerful. Yeah. It's no question. When introduced to this concept of biological health, my brother and I both kind of, you know, got into it. And we've become totally competitive around, like, you know, who's, like, I he's, he's you know, uh, much younger than me. But biologically... You know, I, I'm younger than him, and now he's on a roll. Like, no way, I'm not gonna. You know, and and it feels like, you know, with tools, you 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 know, you've 
you've talked about in other podcasts and stuff like being able to take blood samples really easily and um we could we could I, maybe come up with a universal concept of what how to measure biological health that we could gamify and compete with each other on it um I, it certainly motivates me you know i i love rubbing it in his face that that i'm younger than him biologically um i, I can you kind of just go through because i think a lot of it is convenience go through like you know the future of how we can you know sample our biome and 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 our and our blood i mean it's just I think it's fascinating what you guys have done and, and how convenient you've made it. Yeah, this is something that we we also really love for that that reason. Because something like biological age, like you say, is so useful to take something that's kind of vague and you, know, you discount right your impact on your future self. But in the moment today, it's like, did I get younger this year? You know, that's one of the exciting things you can right. do. You can take a biological uh, age test. And identify that, and you know, we have one that uh, you know that we do from Thorn that Lee and I uh, co-developed at ISB uh, in part. But basically, um, you know, that will take forty different clinical lab tests and and help measure a biological age. And there's a few of them that you know those things that are out there. Uh, you can also get into you know like cognitive health, like Lee was mentioning. So the digital twin type idea, it takes something that's kind of in the future, right, kind of vaguely, like I have one copy of the APOE4 gene that gives elevated, you know, information about Alzheimer's. But if you run like a digital twin simulation, you start to see like right in your face, like, oh, here's kind of where you're at. This is what your number is. You could convert that into something like a brain biological age if you wanted to. And then you can try to say, okay, I'm trying to push that out in the future or get my brain biologically younger, you know, those kind of, those kind of things. Uh, you can yeah. do the same with, you know, gut microbiome or, or any kind of elements of your health. And, you know, one of the ones like the wearables are so interesting. You know, like you can monitor on a daily basis, like what's your percent muscle mass and your percent fat and your percent, um, your estimated VO2 max, right? Like all those fitness scores you can see, all right, where do you stack up against other people and how do you rise up in those rankings and on and on. So I, I do think the gamification right. of all these things is going to be really powerful behaviorally are we i know we're close to having like a kind of agreed upon standard for measuring biological health is that is that something anybody's working on or is it is it reasonable to think that there could be kind of a a universally accepted so that we could gamify this because you know we did you know my brother just goes to a different formula and then all of a sudden gets a better result and you know <laughs> we're like that's not fair like we gotta we gotta use the same same measuring stick yeah we're... well you know i think one of the really important things for this million person project is absolute standardization not only of how we measure things like metabolites and and proteins in your blood but how we generate these metrics that assess your biological age or assess your metabolic effectiveness. We have metrics for both of those now. We think both of them are outstanding for different reasons. But by the time you've been through a million people, will have tested all of those things, will have enormous amount of correlative data. And I think we'll be able to say this is the best possible way you can make this global assessment of biological age or metabolic assessment or whatever it is. <clears throat> what we're going to do is from enormous amounts of data, 
will reduce the dimensionality of the measurements you need to make and put them together into integrated packages like biological age or uh, metabolic BMI, biological BMI and so forth. And this will allow us in the future to have all of these measurements made at home with devices that Thorne and Nathan have developed and everything. And you can send in those measurements to a data system that will then figure out the actionable possibilities and send them to your physician and back to you. Uh-huh. And you can begin this debate about which and how you should go about doing things. But a big part of medicine of the future with wellness and prevention is we aren't going to need big, giant hospitals with enormous cancer and diabetes and all of these wards. We're going to be able to prevent most chronic diseases, and you're going to spend most of your time optimally in wellness, hopefully moving you from a normal wellness stage of maybe 30% up to 80 or 90 or 100%. Those are all matters of will and matters of commitment and what you want to do. And where the benefits come for that is it'll take you out in a similar fashion into your 90s and 100s where your health span is going to equal your lifespan. You'll be effective out to the end of your life, which in 100-year-olds and above, people generally die of sudden systems failures and you don't spend a quarter of your healthcare dollars in the last year or two of your life in the same fashion at all. Yeah. And it usually starts like fall. You break a bone and you just never, you go down built. Yeah, I, lo- I, I, I find that very interesting what you were talking about where the, the, the longer you're healthier, the shorter, you know, that, that, that decline time is. Like you decline quickly. It's, it's sort of like we all want to live healthy and die fast, right? Um, it's exactly the formula. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's an interesting perception element too, um, to, to kind of abandoning the signifier of your chronological age. Cause I feel like people hold on to that in a weird way. And then if you have this whole other metric for, for judging how old you are or, or how well your being is, maybe that's one of the shifts that starts to, to move, uh, in the right direction in terms of participatory involvement if people are, are starting to think about their health in these radically different ways and and of course you mentioned in the book like the perception of just how medicine has been in modern times next to how it's probably going to be 20 years from now yeah and i think yeah best. i read an article where somebody challenged the idea like altogether of even measuring our our actual age and saying like we shouldn't even do it we should stop counting we should only care about biological age and we shouldn't even keep track of our actual age because it's just a, it's just a psychological, you know, way to, to convince us we're, we're old when we're not. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I disagree because the difference between your biologic age and your chronologic age is a metric for how well you're aging. True. I think it's a you gamification moment. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that ratio is really important True. and you want to get it. It's very you motivating. You want to optimize it with other. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I don't think we'll ever get a, you know, totally away from chronologic age in the sense that 
you know, people like birthdays and it's, you know, marking the passage of time and yeah, things like this. Good point. But I do, yeah, yeah. but I do think that one of the things that a focus on biological aging does is I do think it helps people think about their health earlier. So for example, when we do uh, coming back again to this digital twin models and, you know, looking at the, the long view around dementias and so forth, if you start interventions in your forties, you do, you're much better off in terms of the amount of time you save than if you start them in your 50s and if you start them in your 60s, 70s, and so forth. And you uh-huh. can actually map that out in detail for people now, uh, which you couldn't really do before. And that it, so it is one of those really interesting things, which is to start, if you can, you know, coming back to that whole gamification or that biological age, you're getting younger, you're focused on it, you're, you're focused in the present, but you are getting that that huge amplification of benefit downstream, uh, which you can, you know, see in things like the digital twins, you know, so it kind of brings it back to the present. So I do yeah. think that focus is important. Well, you know, I'd like to propose a new thing called functional birthday parties. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that's sounding good already. <laughs> yeah. The observations we made in the Airville population in measuring biological age, we showed that for every year a woman stayed in this health program, she lost a year and a half of biological age. Men lost, on average, 0.8 years of biological age. And Nathan actually declined by 10 years in biological age. So let's have birthdays that reverse the whole process. You have a birthday when you've lost one or two years of wow. biological age. Because, I love that. See, that's an age, that's yeah. an age that really means something to you, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, happy birthday, Nathan. Yeah. Young... It depends how you celebrate it. And, and, you know, so long as you don't go overboard and lose that year again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had this uh, argument. I had a young daughter at the time. And, yeah, and what, you know, when my birthday would come around and we'd, I'd talk about how much younger I was this year than last year. And she just, she just figured. She just didn't think I understood the concept of birthdays, and she tried to re-explain to me. <laughs> it was up one year per year, Dad. Like you don't understand. <laughs> Let me explain something to you, yeah, Dad. Exactly. Like <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about here. You didn't get to it half years younger this year. That's not how that works. Well, let me let me explain well, the concept of time. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> when you get to be my age uh, in the mid '80s. Having a biological age that's 15 years younger than your chronologic age really makes a difference because people can't argue you're just an old man. You know, I'm yeah. I'm really second. I'm I'm not. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Um. I, I I don't want to lose you guys without addressing the the nuts and bolts of biological age. I feel like just like mixology. You know, if you want to get the right LLM, you put. Uh, you know, some Wikipedia and some, I feel like biological age also has its buckets. One of them, like it's been explained that we're basically a plate for bacteria. That's what a human being is like, you know, and, and, and so like, there's gotta be these, like so much of, of it is your biome. So much of it is, is maybe revealed in, in blood testing. So much is it, like you said, wearable, like, what is the mixology, do you think? How much is it biome? How much is it that if you were to imagine a standardized, you know, test for for regularly measuring biological age, how much of, what percent of, of, of what areas would you measure 
Yeah, I can talk about this in a little bit of detail. Um, so first what I'll do is I'll explain how we came up with our biological age just to, so people will have a little sense of how that happened. So one of the, so what we did is we took sure. all of this information, right, from, uh, and the initial version we did of this was around proteins, metabolites, clinical labs, and so forth. And then you regress these big data against age, right? So you first come up with a predictor of age. We use something called the clamara Dubal algorithm, which I won't go into the details on that, other than one which is that you transform the data such that you ensure that the slope of the line that you're learning has a slope very near one. And the reason that matters is that you can monitor it longitudinally. In other words, the expectation is that on average, people will go up by one year per year on this metric. If you don't do it this way, then you have uh, you get curves that are skewed. So it predicts the young people all to be older and the old people all to be younger. Commercially, that's actually not a bad way to go because the young people mostly want to be a little older and the older people want to be younger. And so like everyone's happy, <laughs> but I, I don't think, so I don't think that's great from a, you know, validity standpoint. So that's the first. So second, what you're talking about is, is the, you know, is the contributions. And if you, when we learn this from proteome or metabolome or compared it to the epigenome measures or the gym, you find that they correlated about 0.25 in terms of the residual. So they're, they're much higher correlated because they're all correlated with age. But what you actually care about is the, the difference, right? So if it predicts that you're biologically older or biologically younger, does that matter for your health? So the way that you do this mixology to try to figure out the right amounts of each is really what predicts the best in terms of extending your your health span, right? That that's that's the metric, okay. and it's not yep. not sense. fully worked out, right? So when we moved to do this as a as a commercial test um, at Thorn, like one of the reasons we chose the clinical lab version is because today, of all the different ways that you can measure biological age, that's the one that is most correlated with health outcome uh, today, mm-hmm. and it's also the most interpretable because we know what. You know, high hemoglobin A1C means and what to do about it. We know what uh, depressed DHEA, you know, this uh, precursor to all your hormones is and what to do about it and so forth. So there's all there's all kinds of things that go into that. Now, in the long run, you know what, as you're talking about, like this ultimate version that we might have of biological aging, uh, you know, and there may be multiple versions, right? We may never converge on like one, but the idea there is, that we also know that there's contributions from the gut microbiome. We did a big study on microbiome and aging uh, that we published a couple years ago. Uh, and so there are all these effects, but it's basically combining all of them to try to get as accurate as possible a prediction on differential health outcome. The thing that it's not uh-huh. is you're not trying to be as accurate as possible about your chronologic age, right? Because if you could predict perfectly your chronologic age, that's actually not uh-huh. useful. So the whole thing is that the delta, the difference between your biologic and chronologic age tells you meaningful information and extends your health span. So that that's how that mix Got will it. come together. But we don't have the full answers on on those things yet. Got it. So Lee, I'm going to ask a question. I think I know what you're going to say here, but will this be a a single formula for measuring standardized for measuring biological age or will each one of us have our own formula based on our DNA, based on our very specific um, biome and everything else um, to measure our chronological age? So the answer is both. So okay. it, it, 
What biological age does is it uses multiple features that can assess different parts of the body, the brain, the, you know, the organs, the uh, strength of muscles. And, and the better you can get that averaging, the better you're going to reflect a true biological age. And, and metabolites and proteins are great from that in the blood because the proteins come from all the different organs and so forth in the blood. And the metabolites reflect very general uh, kinds of mechanisms. But I think the other thing that we will plug into the formula with is uh, information on your genome. So the genome, in a sense, is the wiring diagram that in a general way uh, constructs your body and regulates your development. What the phenome does is measure the impact of your behavior and your environment together with this wiring diagram on who you are at any point in time. And the phenome we measure from the blood and the microbiome and digital health and all these kinds of things. But these measurements, when summed, will be able to reduce their dimensionality. We'll see the components that are really critical for different features, for biological age, for uh, metabolic health, for immune health, for all of these different kinds of things. And that's why we can really see in the future, we'll have a tricorder that makes yeah. the appropriate measurements from a drop of your blood or something like that. And, and we'll, you'll come back with accurate estimates of biological age and metabolic health, immune health, all of these different kinds of things. That'll be delivered to the doc and you'll begin debates on what are the appropriate kinds of actions and so forth. So the, the, the biological age is averaging it. And the reason I think it's so important to use things like uh, clinical features or, or metabolites or proteins is they themselves, the constitution of those things, can make recommendations about how to further optimize your biological age. Whereas the, the epigenetic measurements can't, don't give you those deep kind of insights into various aspects of your body. Yeah, this uh, this mixology idea has has proven quite durable. Uh, it, it came to us when we were talking with with Jonathan Frankel, who's a chief scientist at Mosaic, and when he was talking about uh, LLMs for enterprise, his you know their advice is usually not to just try to bake the one perfect cake. You're you're trying to bake a bunch of cupcakes, or or probably more ideally, a bunch of little miniature cupcakes. It almost sounds like that can now happen or very soon happen sort of on a macro level with medicine, but also now on this very micro level where, where each individual patient, the, the, the idea of like identifying disease, uh, figuring out preventative care, or even like running simulations on trial medications can now be like a hundred little cupcakes and then figuring out which one, uh, I guess, tastes best uh, in these. <laughs> <laughs> this analogy, but yeah, is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I like is that, that notion quite a lot. And it's, um, you know, coming back to your know, earlier discussion on digital twins, right? So you have a digital, t we don't yet have us or anybody else, like a digital twin that represents all of your complex biology at the same time. And I don't think that's anywhere close. Okay. 
But what is, you know, to come to your cupcake analogy is, you know, we do have uh, a really nice model of what matters in terms of keeping your brain healthy. You know, we'll then do a diabetes model, right? There'll be an obesity model. There'll be a skin health model. Be, and they'll have loose okay. couplings between these things uh, that you can tie into. But as you dive in and, you know, that cupcake notion, you will in fact have, you know, so around the brain, and then you can deliver information about that in an LLM, right? You're packaging that all together where someone can get their head wrapped around it. And then you'll do all the different cupcakes. And then, the, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you can think about how all these things fit together into one grand big whole. Uh, but it is much easier to stay focused and deal with these kind of one set of issues at a time. And that's not to say that they're not related to each other, right? Diabetes risk is in fact an input into the brain health model, right? There are p places that these tie together, but it's about condensing from this <laughs> mass of all the infinite con connections we could think about down to what are the ones that really, really matter and focusing on those to start. Right. And then there's probably, as you're kind of pointing out, like some orchestration layer between these models that has its own sort of, you know, macro view, um, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's not going to schedule you for, you know, a workout and, uh, you know, whatever massage on the, at the same time on the same day. <laughs> and, and there are really interesting ways that these things tie together. Well, I'll, I'll give an example. So one of the compounds that when we, we simulate, uh, keeping, uh, your energy, uh, production neurons high, uh, under low oxygen conditions, which is one of the triggers we think for uh, dementia and Alzheimer's disease, one compound that you run out of is phosphatidylcholine. And if you go into the nutrition literature, it turns out that people that eat diets rich in phosphatidylcholine get Alzheimer's about three years later on average. So that's let's it. look at how that's interconnected though. So you can eat phosphatidylcholine in eggs. That's the most likely source, or you can take it as a, a cheap supplement or something like that. But if you're taking phosphatidylcholine in whatever form, if you have certain bacteria in your gut, they will eat the phosphatidylcholine and they'll turn it into a compound called trimethylamine, which your liver will turn into TMAO, uh -huh. which is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, right? So you want to have all these little cupcakes uh -huh. because one cupcake's telling you, uh, you should really take a lot of phosphatidylcholine because this is going to delay your dementia. But the other cupcake that you have might tell you, and it's a model of your gut, uh, actually, you got to get rid of these species in the microbiome if you're going to do that, because otherwise it's going to eat it. And there's a, there was a, yeah. a really great cell paper a few years ago that showed that drugs, for example, about 13% of drugs are metabolized away by your microbiome. So you want to know that, right? If you're going to be uh. taking this drug, that's the es you know, essence of personalized medicine, right? To know when that matters and when not. Anyway, there's many, many examples like this. Right. Um, PCSK9, right, which is very, you know, beneficial for your heart. There's some warning signs that if your blood-brain barrier is um, is uh, compromised, that might end up being bad for dementia. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's just many, many of these these elements that you yeah. want to get into. It's funny. This like the theme of this conversation seems to be like adversarial networks, like you know, not 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 the the Uber intelligence telling you what to do, but the 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 almost a conflict, constant conflict of these AI systems to ultimately bring an outcome. And I think it, well, it points in one direction that there's no one answer. There's always, there's, there's multiple right answers to things. Yeah. And so, so that's all we, we, we think in singularity, but it's really like, there's not one recommended next thing to do. 
you, you can't eat that donut, but then there's a scenario where, you, you know, afterwards you do X, Y, and Z and combat the odds. And then there's the not eat the donut scenario and neither one is right or wrong. Um, well, there's multiple right scenarios. Yeah, I love that a lot because, you know, saying that the different way, wellness has multiple dimensions and, and you have to optimize all the dimensions to maximize wellness. Right. For disease, it has multiple dimensions and you have to do a lot of different things to deal with a complicated mess that's already so complex. For most chronic diseases, you can't reverse them by one or two pills or anything. Yeah, the thing I wanted to say about that that I do think is really interesting is just to think about the nature of human intelligence because that's how we operate, right? We don't have, you know, our ideal is not some, you know, intelligence, right? Some person, some dictator, like selling us everything that we're supposed to think and do. It is a very much a complex personalized journey. There's lots of debate. There's lots of angst. There's, we're never right about everything in advance, right? We're not even always right in hindsight. You know, we got to figure these things out. So there's no reason to think that our deployment of AI should be different than that. Yeah, so I, I think it's a really deep point you're making there, actually. Well, when you talk in the book about centaur AI, I think, which is it's a really evocative term that I liked, mm-hmm. where, where it's, it's AI that's part human, part machine, essentially. And that speaks to that, where there is sort of a constant conflict, but it's not it's a conflict that has a favorable outcome, where you have machines doing the things they're exceptionally good at augmenting uh, or augmented by humans doing the things that they're very good at, like with creative problem solving and and seeing things the way that we do, as opposed to the way that machines return uh, results. Yeah. yeah, when I write with, uh, with uh, you know, LLMs and I'll write an article, the, the next thing I do is then have it critique the article. And and then I, then I decide which of those critiques I, I agree with, and then I have it fix it based on those critiques. And I, I do this like several iterations um, and, and it does improve the results. And, and I'm still moderating. I'm still, you know, I'm still the decider of, you know, of, of what things are interesting, what critiques I agree with. But this idea of like iterative decisions and, and being a part of the decision making and, and like three-way or four-way you know, sort of conversations around on, on, around our healthcare is kind of super interesting, especially when it's operating when each element's operating off a complete set of data or an accurate or high definition sense of data. So, you know, nobody's just hallucinating. <laughs> yep. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so we're getting the right answers, but I I still go back to what I love, which is what you said that. In the end, the biggest output might be the education of the person after that whole interaction. Um, Absolutely. Oh. One of the things I, I I was talking, you know, is was, was a conversation with Eric McLuhan, uh, Marshall McLuhan's son, um, and he talked about, uh, um, you know, when Marshall McLuhan wrote his book and published it with um, McGraw Hill. McGraw-Hill had this rule way back when, which was you can't, if you had a new idea, you know, 10% of the book could be new idea. 90% had to be old ideas. And any more than that, you would lose people. And, you know, no question, he disregarded that. (laughs) And, you know, went for like 90% new ideas, 10%, you know, old ideas. Um, and, and naturally it, like what they said hap- would happen, happened. There was a lot of backlash. People were like, this is crazy, you know? And, 
I, I, I like the, the analogy from a standpoint that people tend to want 10% change, you know, and, and to iterate into systemic change. Like there's so much that can change over time and we're so excited for it, but it seems like as soon as we go, we go too far, people start, you know, pushing back. And, and so there's like stepping stones of 10 plus 10 plus 10, you know, what is the 10% that's next on this journey, you know, like this exciting journey for a complete, you know, revisiting of how we manage health. What's the like next 10% that you guys think? You know, I would say from the point of phenome health and our vision of uh, data-driven health, what we plan to do during this period, we're trying to get the very big genome-like project of a million people. We plan to take in order the four major chronic diseases and point at them this deep data-driven approach with lots of additional kinds of twists. And what we think we can do with observational deep data clinical trials of four or five years is in that time learn as much about diabetes as we've known learned in the last 50 years or so. And if we can do that for diabetes, if we can do that for const, uh, uh, cancer, if we can do it for Alzheimer's, and, and if we can do it for heart failure, each case will create a digital twin. Each case, it will have the composite data to be able to create from individual data the actionable um, features that can most bring a person back to normal and deliver them through the physician. I think those are all transitions of the 10% that I can see adapting. And by the time we get done with the four major chronic diseases, we'll, have, uh, we'll be talking about $2 trillion or more out of a $4 trillion budget that, where you can begin to see immediately the direction of health savings through wellness, the, the, the conjunction of wellness and prevention. Okay. So this is, this is how we plan. Give them useful things that the data-driven approach can do that never could be done before. Well, that seems like the pathway to the kind of systemic change that will be required to kind of overhaul the way that the pharmaceutical exactly. industry works, right? Where, where it becomes irrefutable. One thing that comes to mind is um, and you know, I, I, I'm not certain when I say this, but there's a question mark that says, "Can our systems remain more uh, similar to how it is today if we just introduce an intermediary agent, right, between us and our healthcare providers that, you know, not asking the whole system to change how they operate." putting a, a layer between us and the system itself, um, helping us manage the system as it is and morph it into the system that you guys or the future you guys are performing uh, or, 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 you know, sort of actively trying to, to enact. Is there this like layer that can accelerate? So we're not asking the underlying system to make huge shifts, but, but this, this, this sort of middle virtualist, you know, a physician can act as an accelerator in navigating the 
a new version of 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 wellness against an old system. I don't, I don't know if that's, yeah, I think if that's like, making I sense. I think it's a really interesting idea, and I do think we can interface much better if if the government doesn't intervene and stop innovation from competing with the healthcare system. There's no doubt that we could deliver a lot of the health intelligence, right? The information, the medical information we talked about earlier, uh, and solutions that are go- that are focused on wellness and prevention that could be done much more cheaply and more effectively than they are now. Uh, so I think the biggest risk is, you know, just that that's allowed to happen. That that's one. Second is that if you're looking at adoption of the, you know, the current system, that is going to be slow because of financial incentive, right? So when we look at it, like in, t- in today's system, the people who are entrusted with our health only get paid well if we're sick. And so that's a pretty significant uh-huh. barrier in terms of the deployment of prevention. So what I really think and what we advocate in the age of scientific wellness in the book is that we need to have an industry that grows up around this notion of scientific wellness, which we see as sort of healthcare adjacent, that is focused around uh-huh. prevention and wellness that has ties into that healthcare system. When you, you know, disease care is important. I mean, those things are not going away. You know, we, we've got, that is an important element, but it doesn't make any sense, again, to have the people who are entrusted with your health only get paid well when they are, you know, when they are, uh, when you're sick. And so the other thing to understand, and this is the participatory part of the P4 medicine idea, which is only you are fully aligned with the health goals of your life. Your healthcare provider isn't totally mm-hmm. aligned, at least not economically. Your insurance co- you know, provider isn't aligned totally with you. Only you are. And so I think the more that we can center that and make the person have access to really good information, really good interventions, ways they can deal with wellness and prevention, and do it very cost-effectively so that the individual can be at the, the center of that, I think that has to be the future. I love that idea that there's like an intermediary that needs to be created that will allow you to access traditional health, but will navigate it for you. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense. Like it seems more more hopeful that we can move faster if we're not asking a whole system to adapt. One thing I, I can't help but bring up though is dentistry. Let me, let me make one point, yeah, uh, please Rob, do. in that regard. I think patients could be some of the most powerful advocates for this change. Because once you get a a reasonable subset of people into it, they're going to become advocates, I'll guarantee Uh. you. At Aravale, we saw this. People were passionate about health, and they went out and really talked it up. Many of them left their doctors because their doctors were skeptical about this whole new approach to health in their life. Right. So I think patients can be an enormously powerful force in demanding physicians give them the kind of data-driven health that's going to transform their lives. So I was thinking about this a lot after reading the book because um, it just so happened that when I finished the book, I had a dentist appointment and I thought, wait a second. Like they're cleaning my teeth. This is preventative. I'm I'm going in there. They're doing X-rays. To you know, yeah. I brush my teeth. So I said, why in this micro? Like why do I care more about my teeth than the rest of my body? 
you know, what's happening here? It's exactly. <laughs> Oral pain you're, is very uncomfortable. <laughs> you probably do nothing for your brain in terms of health other than be vigorous and And active. my teeth will definitely, definitely outlive me. And that's like, that yeah. seems backwards, right? That, that, that I've prioritized yeah. the health of my teeth over the rest of my body. But there's a system that works, I guess, for prevention. Um, like, why don't they take a blood test and a fecal sample when I go to the dentist and get my my teeth cleaned? And, you know, somebody did argue and say, well, they make money when you get your teeth cleaned because, you know, they identify issues like cavities and then they... But, but I would say cavity is, in a sense, prevention, right? It's preventative because that becomes a root canal and, you know, uh, uh, an implant, like, if you don't take care of it. So, so... I, I'm not sure that they make more money by filling cavities. They maybe make more in the long run by letting them turn into bigger surgical problems. Bigger, yeah, problems. yeah. So, so is is dentistry like a model? Like, could we just piggyback on that? Could they take my blood sample and, yeah. like, when I go in, like, why why is it just my teeth? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what we're trying to change. That's for sure. And, and how do we how do we make sure, in terms of participatory, the participatory element, how do we make sure that we're able to bring this level of care uh, to a global population where there's so much disparity and and so many different healthcare systems, and, and so many different relationships to personal health? I think the key there is to make the technology very simple, focused around a cell phone that anything can do in rural India or Africa uh, very simply and, and to focus on the really big things that make a difference initially. And then when societies become more sophisticated, you can move further ahead. But I think from the million-person project, we'll really be able to abstract, in a sense, different well levels of wellness. And we'll be able to give you the basic or the intermediate or the full thing. And, and people can make choices about which where they want to go. And in the beginning, the underdeveloped countries will obviously take the very simplest, basic kinds of things. But it'll, even that will make a profound difference from the nothing that they have today. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's kind of a democratic element to, to certain certain aspects of artificial intelligence that have emerged uh, just in terms of like generative AI being suddenly kind of accessible to everyone. Um, so so there, it does seem like there are opportunities to introduce technology where maybe it didn't seem like it would be possible before, which is which is really kind of an exciting development. Yeah, with I think it's right such now. an yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, I think it's such an interesting trend that way because, you know, I think the average, you know, the average person on the street or most, you know, most all of us, you know, two years ago, did not see something at the scale of, you know, the current version of LLMs coming, right? I think, you know, we all remember during the course of the right. last year, the first time we used, you know, the latest chat GPT or like the level that that has happened at. And I, I think the point is really well taken that the degree that we can do, that we can democratize like deep personalized medical information, like the way you think about it this year unless you were inside the belly of these tech companies is radically different than you thought about it last year. And so we don't know what other like mm -hmm. unforeseen breakthroughs are coming, but the ability for us to do that 
is just staggering relative to what, what we would have thought of before. So it's really changed our models of everything as we're trying to push personalization out to people now. Yeah, and I love this idea of like yeah. training the data on specific data sets. Like imagine you had an LLM that was trained on all just alternative solutions to solving healthcare problems. And then you had an LLM on traditional proven solutions and then you let them battle it out in front of you. And knowing that each one comes with a different, uh, they're not all aligned to one point of view. They're actually intentionally aligned to different points of view. Uh, super fascinating. I didn't mean to cut you off, Lee. I was just going to say, I mean, I think for me, LLMs have given us a wonderful view of how we can deal most effectively with human complexity and transit, translate it into the simplicity of actionable possibilities that people can deal with, physicians and patients. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's one of the most exciting aspects of your book in a way is that uh, this, this is representing a revolution where people are actually empowered with the, the, the ability to make decisions that will affect their lives in such profound ways. And it's, yep. it's hard to imagine that, not, that, that alone yeah. not creating a seismic yeah, change huge incentive, in society. Though. Well, this has been a great conversation, guys. Uh, like, wow, we, we covered so many <laughs> topics. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah. When I was reading, I was taking notes on things I wanted to talk about, and I was like, there's no way we'll get through all this, but we really did. We got to most of my list. <laughs> yeah, <it's> shockingly. <laughs> Um, so this was great. I really appreciate you guys coming on and chatting with us in our in our little conversational AI world. You know, world. this was a great interview. I mean, we got into substance. We we got into AI, but we translated it into medicine. I think pretty effectively. I was. Uh, it was an exciting conversation. Awesome. Yeah, I'm very happy yeah, to hear that. Thanks, guys. It's definitely been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Josh. So. It was really great.